Hi, I'm Mike Stutchbury, and welcome to the third episode of Get Fact, one of four being released in October. I'd like to make up for the big delay between episodes one and two. This week, we're talking Templar Knights, A Plague That Ravaged the Roman World, and Johannes Kepler. If there's one historical group that the alt-right like to appropriate for their own ends, it's the Knights Templar. Spend any length of time dealing with the alt-right online and you'll come across their distinctive red cross. They're a particular favourite of Islamophobes who like to evoke them as symbols of the struggle against supposed global jihad. Now, there's a lot of guff spoken about the Templars. If you believe what you read online, don't. They have the Holy Grail stashed away, they visited the Americas before Columbus, and may even be protecting the continued bloodline of Christ. That bloody Dan Brown has a lot to answer for. I'd like to take the opportunity to run through the undisputed facts surrounding the Knights Templar and sort out some of the dreck from the truth. We know that the Knights Templar, or Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ, were a military order of knights founded in the 12th century by a French knight, Hugh de Payen. They were granted special privileges by Pope Innocent II in 1139 that allowed them to operate where they wanted to, exempt from tax. We know that their mission was specifically to protect pilgrims travelling through the Holy Land, and they were headquartered on the Temple Mount. From small beginnings, they grew large and powerful. History shows they fought bravely in battles over a span of almost 200 years, as the borders of the Christian Levant shifted back and forth. We can't deny that they were a powerful military force in the region, using their heavy armoured cavalry to smash through enemy lines. Contemporary accounts and archaeology backs this up. There'll be some links in the show notes if you'd like to know more. Where supposition and arguably superstition sneaks in is when people begin discussing the riches of the Templars. They were fabulously wealthy, and many legends have sprung up about it. Conspiracy theorists and the like love to suggest they had access to some sort of miraculous Christian treasure. The Ark of the Covenant or the Holy Grail, for instance. 1982's best-selling The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail even suggested they protected the bloodline of a Jesus who married and had kids. Dan Brown drew deeply from this well while he was writing The Da Vinci Code. The truth of the Templars' riches is simultaneously more mundane and more impressive at the same time. The Templars were among the world's first master bankers. Alongside their protection of pilgrims throughout the Levant, they also offered a service by which gold and jewels could be deposited by pilgrims at a Templar preceptory, combination branch and, and base, such as the Temple Church in London. There they would be issued with documents that granted the bearer an equal amount of gold upon their arrival in the Holy Land. Of course, travel across Europe and the Holy Land was quite risky at the time, and not all of these pilgrims made it to withdraw their gold. Oh well, guess the Templars get to keep it. With the gold they were making, the Templars bought land and built preceptories across Europe. Near where I live, over in Hertfordshire in the UK, great swaths of land used to belong to them. They were able to both sell the produce of their land and rent land to farmers, leading to further riches entering their coffers. They began to be able to lend sums of money to monarchs, making even more money. Alongside their military endeavours, the Templars had managed to build a multinational money-making machine. It was these riches, in part, that led to their downfall. In the early 14th century, Philip IV of France had borrowed large sums from the Templars. Along with his distrust of their continued power, he decided that they needed to be suppressed. On Friday the 13th, 1307, Templars from across France were arrested and tortured into signing confessions. These had them worshipping a figure called Baphomet, indulging in obscene rituals, including kissing naughty bits, and denying Christ. Subsequently, many were then burned for heresy before a full trial could occur. Funny that. Their last Grand Master, Jacques de Molay, held out until 1314 when he was burned in front of Philip and his court. Within the space of a few years, the Templars disappeared. 
With their leader in France gone, many in other kingdoms either opted to leave or join other knightly orders. Much of their lands were given to the Knights Hospitaller, who still exist, albeit in a much reduced, changed form. Given all that, I find it funny that the old right have appropriated the Knights Templar, considering that they opened the door to the sort of monolithic banking they despise so much. In a very real sense, they are the poster boys for early multinationalism, operating across borders and not subservient to any monarch or higher power except for God. It's even funnier when you consider that over the course of their 200-odd years, the Knights Templar undoubtedly influenced the art and culture of Western Europe, as they brought back innovations in weaving, calligraphy and ceramic. They were early ambassadors and conduits of what the Islamic world had to offer. One only needs to see the increase in the complexity and intricacy of designs in medieval art after the turn of the 12th century to understand what an influence they had. I think the alt-right's embrace of the Templars is due to the quasi-mystical aura they've been given in popular culture. Many don't look too hard beyond the Da Vinci Code or any number of trashy novels or video games. It's worth, then, reminding those who appropriate them of the reality of the situation. There's much they would despise about the Knights Templars if they were ever to meet them. Sometimes it's worth remembering, as we watch the news, that things have been worse. Much, much worse. That's why I'm introducing a new segment, Great Devastations, to remind us that the past was much more dangerous, much more frightening, much more icky than today's world ever could be. When you think of Great Plagues, what do you think of? The Black Death? The Spanish Flu? What about the Antonine Plague? We tend to usually forget or overlook ancient plagues unless you're some sort of biblical scholar, and for good reason. Sources aren't exactly heavy on the ground. The Antonine Plague, on the other hand, has a number of records. The Romans were fantastic like that. We can trace the spread of the disease and get some sort of an idea about how many died in various parts of the empire from these contemporary accounts. One thing we don't know for sure is what exactly the plague was. There have been many theories over the years, but the majority of historians seem to think that it was smallpox. This is backed up by an account from the pioneering physician Galen, who noted fever, skin pustules and vomiting, all classic symptoms of the disease. From the accounts of physicians, military officials and other chroniclers, it appears that the disease arrived in the Roman Empire around 165 CE, during the siege of Seleucia in modern-day Iraq. From there, many deaths are recorded throughout the eastern provinces of the empire before arriving in Gaul, France, and finally Italia, Italy. The disease then seemed to subside for a while before returning around 178 CE for another go. Rome was hit especially hard as one of the most populous cities in the world. The Roman historian Cassius Dio suggests that at its worst, the plague was killing 2,000 city dwellers a day, and that one quarter of the city's population succumbed to it. The sort of devastation that the empire wouldn't see for hundreds more years. But that's another story. The effects of the Antonine Plague were to linger long after it passed. Some historians suggest that the Roman army lost at least one in ten soldiers, and that some areas took decades to recover their previous output and wealth. Indeed, some historians call the Antonine Plague the disease that destroyed the Roman Empire. It simply couldn't recover from the loss of human life and maintain its borders. It was, in a way, the beginning of a long, slow decline over centuries. It kind of makes you glad to live when you do, right? Between the 1940s and the 1960s, improvements in microbiology led to smallpox vaccines that eliminated the disease across the world. Indeed, the only live specimens of the virus are kept in US and Russian facilities. Additionally, organisations such as the Centre for Disease Control and the World Health Organisation are constantly on the lookout for new bacteria and viruses that could threaten humanity in the form of a pandemic. So cheer up, buddies. Things ain't too bad. Come here for a hug.
Johannes Kepler is known for giving us his laws of planetary motion. Much of modern astrophysics are based on them. He's a scientific genius of his age, known for his inquisitive mind and imaginative prose. He wrote one of the first science fiction novels, Sobham, about a trip to the moon. Did you know, however, he also saved his mother from being burned as a witch? True story. He had to deal with a serious case of fake news in order to do so. It all started in the German town of Leonberg, just outside of Stuttgart, in the Holy Roman Empire, in 1615. While Kepler was off in Linz, Austria, building on the seminal work he'd been doing with fellow astronomer Tycho Brahe, his mother, Katharina, was being harassed by her neighbours, possibly something to do with a financial dispute. They claimed, amongst other things, that she'd sickened a young girl, transformed into a cat, and cursed various individuals. I just want to digress here for a moment. I've been to Leonberg. Weird place. Very weird place. I was there at midday on a weekday, and the entire place was deserted. I swear I saw curtains move in windows as I passed by. Strange. Very, very strange. In 1617, a formal accusation was made against Katerina, and it looked like she was going to fall into the clutches of Lutherius Einhorn, the stake-happy local magistrate. Word was sent to Johannes, and he hurried back from Linz to scoop her up and take her back with him. This was before police, so if he could escape the area, odds are you were going to be fine. Katerina stayed with Johannes and his family in Linz for a few years, but ultimately returned to Leonberg. She was too homesick, I guess. There she lived with her daughter until she was arrested in August 1620, charged with 40 counts of witchcraft, and dragged into the town's prison, located in one of the towers ringing the town. Incidentally, that tower is now the location of a pub popular with the far right. Figures. Again, Johannes had to race back from Linz, but this time he had to mount a legal defence for his mother. While he was doing this, his mother, who was kept in dark, cold and wet conditions, was shown the instruments of torture in an attempt to get her to confess. Johannes methodically went through each of the accusations, noting the discrepancies and demonstrating how each charge had been fabricated out of a combination of malice and financial motives. Eventually, the court had no option but to acquit her in 1621. Success and happiness, however, was short-lived. Katerina, Weakened by her horrible experiences in prison, died only a few short months later in 1622. After burying her, Johannes and his family returned to Linz. He would only live another eight years before dying himself in 1630. Suspicion, fear and malevolence had a major impact on the Keplers in the 1620s. The lies and slanders of the neighbours took on a life of their own, multiplying and feeding on human nature until it almost destroyed the seminal astronomer. Gee, good thing that sort of stuff doesn't happen these days, huh? So that's the third episode of Get Fact. In the next few episodes, we'll be trying out a few more segments, and who knows, maybe even a name change. Turns out there's an existing Get Fact podcast, albeit defunct. Remember, if you've enjoyed what you've heard and you'd like to support it, you can always subscribe at patreon.com underscore. With the next few episodes, I'll be introducing special features just for subscribers. Cool, huh? Until next time, this is Mike Stutchbury telling you to Get Fact.